listeners, and welcome to Popscreen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to deal with the good, the bad, and the bewildering of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to hip-hop, from country and western to science fiction. I've mixed those up, but I don't care, because every time I do this spiel, I sound ever more like I'm an auctioneer or something. Yeah. So to the man over there. That's, <laughs> that's auctioneering by Sir Rowley Birkin, isn't it? <laughs> I was very, very drunk. <laughs> See, to have bought a calf. <laughs> but yes, I am your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for Horrified Geek Show and We Are Cult, and I also make the odd film every now and then uh, and yes. write the odd booklet for second run. I've been joined by... I've got to say the odd very good film. I have to throw that in as oh, well. thank you. Thank you very yes. much. Uh, but yes, you've been joined today by this cunt. <laughs> 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 Just when the tea's going in. For yeah. You've been joined by Mark Cunliffe, who also writes for The Geek Show and We Are Cults. Uh, you will find me on Letterboxd. You will find some of my essays in booklets for uh, various Arrow film releases. And I'm also have a chapter in Scarred for Life Volume 2, which is available from lulu.com. And just this past month, I've got my very first um, review quote on a film poster, which I'm quite proud about. Oh, no way. What was it for? Yeah, it was, it was one of my Geek Show reviews. It was for... Um, Nobody loves you and you don't deserve to live, which is a really interesting um, political indie uh, low budget Mancunian film, which I'm quite pleased with. Excellent. So, yeah. Well, normally on pop screen, we like to do artists who've been around for a while who have some sort of meat to dig into in career terms who you can do a bit of a deep dive on but we're venturing into the charts for today's hottest new hit maker um kate bush this week <laughs> it's mad isn't it it's really weird speaking of somebody who's like adored the blessed kate since like my teenage years i'm seeing all these like teenagers now and it's like the fuck took you so long? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but the impression I get from Stranger Things, and I might be wrong in this, is that it skews young in its audience, so I can forgive them for not knowing the work of someone who hasn't released an album for 11 years. God, is it 11 years already? And, and when she did, it had a 13-minute song about having sex with a snowman on it, so, you know... Even even that wasn't massively commercial. No. <laughs> Thank God, really. You yes. want a commercial, Kate Bush. I have to say, before before we uh, launch into uh, today's films, I have never seen an episode of Stranger Things. No meaning. My, oh, right. Thank God for that. Um, I'm told it's very um, fantastical mm. in the sense that it has uh, American policemen saving American children, which I mean... <laughs> Does it get much more fantastical than that, really, does it? <laughs> yeah, I'd avoided it too because I, I just hate that whole 80s nostalgia industrial complex. But if it's achieved one good thing, 
it has got running up that hill to number one. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, we can we can forgive um, the idea that you know the were the eighties great that sort of yeah. rose tinted. Oh lord, they weren't. <laughs> Was it John Inverdale, the sports commentator, who once decided to say he tried to say rose tinted glasses, but it came out rose cunted glasses. I think it was, yeah. <laughs> I was just reminded of when that sort of first stage of 80s nostalgia was going on with I Love the 80s and shows like that. Yeah, Someone asked yeah. Billy Bragg about it and he said, uh, no, nah, I prefer I Love the 1940s or, as it used to be known, The World at War. <laughs> that was a weird series. I mean, I must, I must admit, I bought fully into... I love the 70s and I love the 80s. It was a turn of the century Saturday night telly, wasn't it? You could have like, you'd yeah. have like two hours of like wall-to-wall nostalgia fest and then you'd have yes. like a film at the end of it from that, that year that they'd just been talking about. But then when it got to the 90s, bear in mind it was like 2000 when this was on, it just felt a bit like I love last Tuesday week, which <laughs> yeah. doesn't really have the same appeal to anyone. I... I've- find it a bit unsettling watching things that I actually lived through being sort of flattened out and all of the actual sort yeah. of conflicts and spiky bits that made those evas interesting to live through. Assuming they were interesting to live through. I mean, some of them weren't, but they, they just get sort of smoothed out and it's this world oh, where everyone was listening to the same things, everyone was watching the same things. That it's a palatable. existed sanitized pg version of the lives we've left lived really isn't it yeah, mm. yeah i was I, I was very happy during the 90s and i still have a soft spot for a lot of 90s culture but i'm just watching this like first wave of 90s nostalgia establishing itself and just thinking it wasn't like that what are you talking about that wasn't yeah. the decade i remember i it's... mean it's possible that i'm wrong but that's that's not the case so well, this is it. I mean, we all have different opinions of, of yeah. the things we've experienced, don't we? Whereas those things are, can you have the same opinion for monetary value, which is <laughs> all yes. these pundits are interested in, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Do you remember this? No. Well, here's 50 quid. Will you remember it now? Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's <laughs> a wonderful story Amanda Yanucci once told about being in, invited on to uh, a show about British sitcom history and he sat there and sort of explained in what he felt were pretty cogent terms and I'm sure they were because uh, he's a very smart man but talk about you know how a lot of the official version of sitcom history isn't really true when there are more sort of complex things going on between the surface of a beneath the surface of a lot of consensus hits then the end the producer said oh that's great and just for link purposes can you say and then there was dad's army it's like when it came out the only bit of this interview they used with and the start of the dad's army. army and then there was dad's army and it continues to be dad's army forevermore <laughs> every saturday evening since 1990 i think yes <laughs> We've already gone wildly off track here. Incredibly we? off track. But yeah, this but... is just, this is the atmosphere, isn't it? It's just two blokes just chatting nonsense before I we get so. onto the, the main sort of, uh, this is the starter bit of the menu, isn't it? Well, there is, there, there, there is a kind of lead in that I can give because uh, the first of a double bill, first time we've done a double bill on Pop Swing, but yeah. the first of the two sort of shortish films we're tackling 
is Kate Bush's self-directed 1993 film, The Lion, the Cross and the Curve. And this is based on several songs from her album, The Red Shoes, which my memory was um, a lot of older, like a lot of adults I knew who were fans of Kate Bush. And I did know, you know, a fair few people in my family were Kate Bush fans. For them, this was the first disappointment they'd had from her, that album. Yeah, I mean, listening to it now, I don't see that. But I do remember at the time, um, that was the general consensus. Oh, it's a bit of a dud, this, you know, yeah. and not really her on firing on all cylinders. So it's interesting that, you know, an album that may have been unfairly maligned is the one she wanted to try and break out into, into film on. Uh, or alternatively, maybe she thought the message from the album wasn't, carried across well enough so she'll try and do a film of it who knows well they were made more or less simultaneously so i guess right. she she may not have had enough time to sort of incorporate the reaction to the red shoes in but I'm, could be yeah listening to the songs as they're played here i mean and these are the album recordings for the most part so it's not a case of oh they sound better when they're played live because they're not being played live um I developed a theory about this. I think that if you got into Kate Bush as like a teenager during the 80s, those records were just, uh, uh, they fitted into the pop landscape and also towered above them. Something, an album like Hounds of Love is Mm. using the same kind of instrumental palette as a lot of contemporary synth pop albums but it's doing yeah. stuff that's much more radical in a lot of ways i think primarily because the rest of the landscape caught up with her at that point mm. you know i mean the sort of uh the early stuff um you know using Fairlight when that was not really a tremendously uh it well... wasn't real music was it yeah was yeah opinion. and then yeah. suddenly within like three four years later everybody is like using that technology yeah. and everybody is pushing for a synth sound you know uh so yeah it was interesting when you look at the hounds of love because it is of that landscape as you say but also it towers above it because she's she's obviously had the experience of, of uh, playing in those in that uh, sandpit for a lot longer really yeah oh yeah i mean i think you can point to something like running up that hill and say that's synth pop. It's superior synth pop, but it is synth pop. And then by the time you get onto the ninth wave, you just think, hmm, this isn't Duran Duran anymore. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. <laughs> but I think some of the backlash to the Red Shoes is from that fan base who came of age with those albums and were maybe getting a bit disaffected by pop as we went into the 90s, as one does as one gets older. I wonder if they listened to this and thought, oh, it sounds like modern pop, because there is a lot of stuff on the Red Shoes where you think she's moved with the times. The title track sounds extraordinary. Not the title track, uh, Rubber Band Girl, the the, uh, lead single sounds extraordinarily like the stuff that Prince was putting out at that point. Mm. And then later on in the album, of course, Prince shows up. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, again, it's it's catching up the landscape, isn't it? Mm. And it's sort of, then it's feeding off, um, 
you know, your, your contemporaries and your, the people who've come after you and, uh, just generally it's a, it's a melting pot, but I, I, yeah, I get, I get what you mean because I think as with any sort of, um, chapter in pop music or the beginning of a decade, there seems to be this kind of, or even the end of a decade for that matter, there seems to be this kind of, um, oh, is this what it's going to be like? You know, are we yeah, still doing yeah. this? You know, uh, that you had it with, um, I mean, most famously, it's the punk rock explosion in 76, really, isn't it? To get rid of everything that happened before it. Um, and I think by sort of like the early 90s, you're kind of thinking, well, we've done that 80s glossy aesthetic yeah. to death now. Um, let's go for something different. And, you know, grunge came along, which sort of dirtied it up a bit. And then Britpop sort of really sort of came about to uh, to give it that authentic uh British accent that was missing in a lot of um, a lot of music beforehand, but yeah, then again, that 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 speaks of it, I suppose, in the same way that punk was quite ignorant or quite um, puritanical. It mm. speaks of that kind of lumping everything together as one yeah. mass of something, which it clearly wasn't, because as you say, there's a lot of weird things going on with most. Kate Bush albums to just go oh it's that 80s glossy aesthetic again you know yeah completely yeah it's it's like dismissing boy because you don't like glam rock and you think well all right maybe there's a couple of albums you won't like but there's a bit more to it than that yeah absolutely I mean it's like I mean the interesting thing now is that it's on Stranger Things which mm. of course is the whole packaged 80s nostalgia thing um when we were children or um, approaching like 10 or whatever, um, we were already living a form of 80s nostalgia in Miami Vice, which just seemed <laughs> to just every week packaged a song that was in the charts to give it, you know, to give it some sort of welly behind a, a scene or something like that. But I, I don't know if Kate Bush ever appeared on a Miami Vice soundtrack, which... Oh, boy, uh, can you imagine? I know, certainly many of her contemporaries would have done. Duran Duran, Phil Collins, I'm sure they were all over most Miami Vice episodes. Crockett so, and Tubbs taking down another cocaine dealer to the soundtrack <laughs> of There Goes a Tenor. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's trying, I mean, you could imagine running up that hill in there and of yeah. course you know um it's not like although american america was famously a bit ambivalent towards kate bush and a bit she's still a bit of a best kept secret although that's probably going to change now with with stranger things um, yeah i think that's another sort of subtext of how people are talking about running up that hill being a hit that there's this version now, and I don't know how true it is, but there's this version of events where Kate Bush was Britain's best kept secret for ages, and now the Americans have finally discovered her. I think that's a, yeah. a pretty severe oversimplification, but there's a big Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because when you consider the fact that um, this woman's work features on uh, She's Having a Baby by John yeah. Hughes, and it's quite a memorable scene, and it's quite beautifully done. I mean, this is not somebody that america isn't is you know isn't aware of it's not it's not like it's not it's not like jonah louis you know 
<laughs> We're not just plucking some random uh, musician from the 80s who has had some chart success. It's not famously Dexy's Midnight Runners, who are, for America are always going to be known as a one-it wonder for Common Eileen, but of course have an extensive uh, career in history over here that yes. America, most America would not know of. Well, I, I think I've mentioned before that I am a great fan of reaction videos. And when you watch them enough, yeah. you can spot certain tropes and subtexts creeping under them. There's there's an awful lot of ones that seem to react mostly to British stuff, which I think is like America just giving us a comforting hand on the shoulder and going, you're still cool. You know that. You're still all right. <laughs> but, um, one... Nice work, bird. <laughs> One that comes up over and over again, I've noticed, is Americans, particularly Black Americans, listening to this woman's work and suddenly realising that that Maxwell song they grew up with was a cover. That happens yeah. so many times. Yeah, and again, it, it destroys, like you say, it destroys the myth that... I mean, I'm not going to say that... Um, Middle America or most mainstream America knows Kate Bush or is interested in Kate Bush. Perhaps that's changing now. But the idea that the whole of America was completely ignorant of this uh, yeah. seminal artist is just ridiculous. If you knew your music, you knew Kate yeah. Bush. You know, yeah. speaking of uh, American Kate Bush fans, you know who really loves Kate Bush? No. Uh, no. Big Boy from Outcast. Oh, right. Oh, no. I did not know that. He's a no. massive Kate Bush fan. What One day, some like, rap website does a regular series where they say you know what's your favorite verse and most people obviously pick something from a rap song but uh, he picked a verse from running up that hill oh wow fair enough see it's all coming together then it is it is yeah so the line that crossed the curve as a film i suppose we're talking about 80s holdovers and whereas i think that's an unfair thing to lay on the red shoes which does connect with wider styles and more contemporary styles uh, than that implies as a film this is definitely an 80s throwback it's a throwback to those long-form yeah. music videos that russell mulcahy and julian temple yes, were all making yes. back then that's the i mean i watched it again the other night and the first thing that came to me was i was just shocked that it was 1993 really um because i thought hang on the red shoes is about 93 isn't it and i had to yeah. double check because i think this just feels like 88 or 89 or something like that. And even 88 or 89, it's sort of that kind of thing's had its day. Yeah. It's a, I mean, the, the, the biggest, con the biggest uh, similarity that came to my mind was, as you just mentioned, then Julian Temple. So it's, mm. um, it's the one he did with Bowie. Uh, is it Jasinford Blue Jean? Thank you. All yeah. I can think of was his Blue Jean. I couldn't think of the rest of the, the title. It's that, really, isn't it? It's very yeah. similar to that kind of uh, long-form music video, uh, short film, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's had its day by 1993, so it's a curious move from Kate Bush. Somebody, like I say, as we've just started this conversation, to sort of say that her contemporaries were catching up with her, you know, the, the rest of the landscape had caught up with her. It's a it's a weird time for her to sort of dip a toe in something that everybody else has already done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, if she'd have done this for Hounds of Love or The Sensual World, it would have seemed right on trend. But yeah. not so much now, I think. Unless it was just an itch that she just wanted to scratch that, 
you know, she wanted to see that she could because originally wasn't it supposed to be um, she was going to ask Michael Powell to do it or have I just imagined that? She did contact Michael Powell. I don't know if it was specifically like for the directing job or just to pick his brains, but he is one of the like absent friends who's lamented on moments yes. of pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, along with um because it always gets me. The guitarist, yeah, yeah, and Bill Duffield as well, the lighting engineer who um mm. tragically died on the tour. That one always gets me that. Hey there, Bill. Um, can you turn the house lights up? It's the last line. It's quite uh, quite poignant. Yeah. yeah. But um I Michael Powell, picture, yeah. I can picture it being something that she wanted to do because one of the things you realise when looking through her back catalogue retrospectively is how consistent her cinema references are. They are always present on every single album. Yeah, I mean, it's a case of better late than never, really, isn't mm. it? In the sense that she's always been... I mean, even as a child, when you think of um, her brothers and her, her father, the, the way they, you know, the photograph book, um, the way they, they just sort of, like, created an image right from the off really just watching a child that play it's almost like something out of alice in wonderland really isn't it yeah yeah um so she's always been a visual artist as much as a sonic artist or an artist without it's her ideas aren't just caught on yeah vinyl really um so it is strange that it took her this long to sort of because the videos are outstanding anyway. A, vi a videos are like mini films, as it Completely. is. So it's, it's um, and and the weird thing is, videos for like Hounds of Love, experiments like that, they're better than this film. It's yeah, a horrible I thing to so. say, but they are, aren't they? <laughs> it's know? almost unfair, really, because I think yeah. something like Cloud Busting is one of the all-time oh. great music videos. Yeah. Um, as well as the the fact that. Kate Bush is dressed as a small boy throughout, probably caused a lot of very confused feelings in yeah. teenage boys in the mid 80s. But uh, it is Definitely. fantastic. And yeah, I think so. I think th this is, this has that regular problem of extended music videos in that it's neither fish nor flesh. If you just cut it up and released it as a series of music videos, which she did eventually do. These are great videos, you know, there oh, is yeah, a bad yeah. one among them. Uh, if you expanded it into a full-scale musical feature film, it might have painted a bigger target on her back, but I think it would have been a better movie. Yeah. As it is, it's not quite either. It hints at something really interesting, but it doesn't it doesn't hang together. There's no um I mean the 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 most bizarre thing which i don't know why anybody thought it was a good idea is you, you open with rubber band girl brilliant song love it uh, yeah. really beautifully done video with the dancing and what have you and then how do we get out of that into the next thing we'll have peter richardson come in with a big giant fan <laughs> oh it's it's out of control you don't know to switch it off <laughs> 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 and then everybody has to run in and stop them. It's like something from. It's like it's almost like a Cliff Richard film, isn't it? And you get the comic relief, <laughs> the old comic actor who would have sort of like appeared in that pop up and go, ooh, and they sort of stop it for him, and then they're like they move on to the next thing. It's just so 
I don't know how anybody thought that was a good idea. And um, I don't know how, if Michael Powell was sort of courted to direct this before his untimely death, that clearly would have featured in it. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't get why that was, how that is supposed to introduce us to anything. (laughs) It is very odd, yeah. And I think this is also around the time that the idea of the pop movie is becoming a bit tarnished isn't it the yeah, early 90s yeah. and i think introducing kate bush as an accident prone singer who's going through a new song in a rehearsal room and then the comic relief handyman blunders in it's mm. you know it, it's a bad richard lester imitation and it gets the film yeah. off to a wrong start i think yeah and as you mentioned before you know this was like years ago um, it's and and then there was Dad's army. It's Clive Dunn has just sort of wandered in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I get that it. I mean, we'll talk about Peter Richardson later on, but I, I get that it plays to his um, his interests because obviously, you know, he was representing a kind of um, with comics represents a sort of alternative carry on type mm. vibe, which of course then came to fruition about the same year, really, with Carry On Columbus, didn't it, which he appears in. Yes, I hadn't thought so of it that way, but yeah. There's, yeah. there's a lot of interesting intersections going on, and you could see why he why that role would appeal to him, um, to just sort of, like, tip the hat to, like, the past, but say, but put his own sort of, like, you know, alternative 80s stamp on it. Um, but it's a very straight... The first line of dialogue spoken in the film um, <laughs> for that scene... Yeah. With no sort of like introduction or insight into what it is we're watching, it's a very strange choice. It might, I, I mean, guess, have uh, have had an effect in lowering my standards because as soon as Kate Bush herself starts delivering dialogue, I remember thinking, hey, she's not bad. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we've got to remember she's directing this herself. Yeah. Um, and the great thing about directors is they elicit really good performances, especially if they're actors. Yeah. If, if an actor is a director, if a director is an actor. So Peter Richardson gets a much better performance out of her in Les Dogs than, he, than she gets out of herself in this. But I think that's because of, you know, she's not, um, she's not experienced or skilled in either of the roles she's choosing for herself there as actor or director but of course yeah she's not bad it's mm. there are there are worse performers out there who uh whose background isn't necessarily in um acting i mean we've covered some of them yeah. we certainly have yeah <laughs> um, yeah i think i would agree with your assessment there i think there is a lot of native skill to both of acting and direction but yeah. it is too ambitious a project for her to hit every mark she's going for yeah and like I say, I don't think it. The dots aren't joined up very well. Mm. I mean, if if I mean, I'm not. So you're the you're the film director. You can you can do it better than me. But I would have sort of gone from. If you had to open with a song, which people would expect, yeah. So you'd go with Rubber Band Girl, and then I would go to try and explain something about Miranda Richardson. I would do a completely different scene that hints at this weird fantastical world that is going to intrude upon reality pretty damn quick so i would do that first really not the comedy well you don't know to switch this big fan (laughs) off (laughs) well the second song is and so is love which is very odd because if if anything feels like it should be like the big climatic power ballad yeah 
either that, right? Either that yeah. or moments of pleasure. It's a straight, like you said, the, the dots in this just aren't really joining up. I think um, there's and, a lot of very good stuff in it, despite that lack of connective tissue. I think the the routine for the song, the title song, The Red Shoes, is excellent. And it does draw on that sort of more theatrical aesthetic that she was obviously very comfortable in. Yeah. And maybe that's maybe that's why she chose to sort of ground it very, you know, I'm just a singer, we're, we're rehearsing, blah, 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 and then build on to the fantastical elements as opposed to put a bit of fantastical element in early on, you know, yeah. early doors to try. But I think, yeah, it needs to be more welded together better, I think. I suppose part of what's going on is that one of Kate's ideas for the Red Shoes as an album was to make a more live record um, mm that she could then take on tour. <laughs> and then, just 21 short years <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah, we've got to say uh, right from the off, if you are listening to this or watching this because you've heard Kate Bush from Stranger Things, you're like, who's this Kate Bush person? Um, if you want to become a fan, you've really got to have a lot of uh, patience and <laughs> persistence because <laughs> this shit doesn't come easy. <laughs> I think the only thing I'm a fan of that has like tested my ability to wait for new material more than Kate Bush is Thomas Pynchon. <laughs> Thomas Pynchon seems more likely to give a public appearance <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> It's like when Netflix brought that awesome Wells film out recently, wasn't it? Well, yeah. I said recently, it was about three years ago now. And I, I just can imagine there might be people sat around going, when's that awesome guy going to do a new film? <laughs> <laughs> There's someone at Netflix sat there thinking, I wonder if we could get him to turn that into a mini-series. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be somebody out there who thinks that's brand spanking new because they've seen like the year 2019 next to it yeah. or something and gone, why is he not making another film? You know, it's strange <laughs> he's not followed that one up. <laughs> yeah. Like, I really love the 70s aesthetic. It's really spot on. It looked like it was the <laughs> 1970s. It's not like Stranger Things. It's too glossy. This really looked like the 70s. <laughs> hey, when while we talk about decades having a particular aesthetic, I love the fact that as soon as the title track finishes... Kate Bush ends up in no less early 90s a location than the fucking Red Room from Twin Peaks. Yeah, this is a very Lynchian um, type of music video going on here, isn't it? Definitely. And then you've got Lindsay Kemp, who, to be honest, Lindsay Kemp frightens me more than that little dwarf guy. <laughs> yeah, <he is laughs> There's something good. about the way he turns to and goes, it's really happening to you. Yes. <laughs> Just... <laughs> <laughs> in fact while we're on a lynch tip and i know mark you'll be thrilled that i'm taking the conversation in this direction no no um, I'm, eager, I'm eager to learn <laughs> lindsay kemp in this looks a lot like robert blake in lynch's lost highway which was released about four years after this i think oh right okay so there may be some inspiration flowing in both directions there i think you never know who knows? Um, I now feel like Nick Frost in that thing when Simon Pegg says, 
him, oh, Bob in Twin Peaks. And Nick Frost goes, never watched it. And he's like, well, wasn't Bob scary? I don't know. So <laughs> I just feel like that now. I just feel a bit like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Robert Blake looked like him. But I mean, I've learned something now. I can go back and yeah. look at that. I think, ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kemp is, of course, a, a culturally fascinating figure, is he not? Yeah, and a, a huge influence on uh, on Kate and Bowie uh, themselves. Um, yeah. But yeah. A fascinating figure. Um, yeah, we lost a real interesting eccentric talent when uh, when Lindsay Kemp passed. Definitely. Yeah, and he needs to be spoken about more. And I don't think I personally could do him justice. But you know, if you if you're familiar with um, Bowie and Kate Bush, uh, the, the films of Derek Jarm and stuff like yes. that, you'll have come across Lindsay Kemp. And indeed, in some Derek Jarman films, people have come across Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> but that is interesting, isn't it? That there is a figure who can tie together Kate Bush and David Boy, two of the most obsessed about musical figures yeah. in yeah. the world at the moment, and LGBT history as well. He also yes. had that connection. His dance school was a very sort of inclusive, very queer-friendly space at the time when yeah. that wasn't the case elsewhere in British society. And it's strange that someone can tie into this many things and still be largely a sort of secret handshake. Yeah, again, he really... I mean, we were talking before about Kate Bush being some sort of best-kept secret. No, he really is a best-kept secret. You, yes. you either know this man or you don't know him, really. Mm. Um, you, you know, some people just go, who's that weird, creepy-looking fella in this, rather than go, oh, shit, it's Lindsay Kemp, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, it's got a lot of interesting people in. I mean, the big name is Miranda Richardson at that point yeah. where she'd just done The Crying Game and she was a very big name in British cinema indeed. Yeah, um, a huge talent. I mean, Oh, I love her, yeah. It's, it's uh, that, that kind of talent that you don't really get in, in the industry anymore, really, that sort of like they'll appear in something like a sitcom Mm. You know, Blackadder 2 um, as Queenie and yeah. steal the whole series uh, and then suddenly be doing like really interesting straight acting like Dance with a Stranger and The Crying Game uh, that you just completely, you cannot picture that person as the person you've just seen on the small screen. It's, it's... Yeah, that's a fair point, isn't it? I, I don't know whether... I don't know. I, I think the only like contemporary British performer I can think of who moves from drama to comedy that regularly is probably Olivia Colman. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, but she's um, she's she sort of she seems plays... more situated in drama at the moment. Yeah, at the moment, yeah, and she sort of plays a similar kind of role. Mm. If you get what I mean, I don't want to denigrate her because I think she's a remarkable talent in herself, but she sort of plays that kind of uh, vulnerable uh, yeah. put upon, whereas um, Miranda Richardson sort of goes from, there's no, I mean, the one thing that sort of perhaps could could join the dots from Queenie and Blackadder to uh, the dancer in this via 
the crying game and dance with the stranger is a kind of burly suppressed mania <laughs> yeah yeah that's it uh, that that's the way you measure Miranda Richardson performances and how suppressed is the mania like in black attitude not suppressed at all not at all no in not dance at all. with a stranger definitely maybe got a bit reined in there bubbling yes. under the surface the crying game is a, a wonderful um villainess performance really isn't it yeah people don't talk about her in the crying game enough i think I no they, it, they really don't no that's true it gets drowned out by the jay davidson plot line i guess but yeah. it is yeah, a fantastic performance you're right i still maintain it's a fantastic film although mm. it's it's sort of fallen foul now of um you know what we accept in terms of uh you know uh depictions of trans lives really um i don't know i think it's still quite sympathetic but i am not the person to be answering that and i'll fully put my hands up to it straight away Mm. yeah i would say so i mean it's been a long time since i watched it but i think we should we need to renormalize this feeling of sort of watching something and accepting one this would not be made today and two it's fine though you know, it's it's well yeah, intentioned. Yeah. You for know, what it's... it was, for for what it was at the time, it's it's groundbreaking and uh, yeah. interesting. Um, but yeah, there's a kind of everything has to be met with a, and I don't want to sound like one of those fucking Piers Morgan types, but there's a, <laughs> which I'm really not, honestly. But there's a kind of everything has to be watched or assessed with a 2022 viewpoint. Um, yeah, and I think you, you have to be seen as either for or against that, whereas I think you're not really going to get anything out of older media unless you can see, like, through both lenses of the glasses, you know. Yeah, and it, I suppose in a way it goes back to what we were saying before about the Isle of the 80s and that, really. Mm. It's the kind of, that was, you know, where you, you, you feel like there's just one homogenous consensus of, of life, that's um, true actually i wonder if people are like more offended by old media because they've been lied to about the 80s yeah, and the 60s because... being these euphoric golden ages and exactly. now they're looking back and going section 28 that was a bit rough wasn't it yeah exactly like they've gone oh and we have by george and that that answers everything as opposed but, to yeah, we had that was uh, we had boy george fine. yeah but we also had section 28 we yes. also had you know gay bashing and what have you <laughs> but you had boy george so this this film is wrong <laughs> <laughs> you had as bit again quoting billy bragg you had as uh, as billy bragg said spandau ballet ponting about on top of the pops in the mama dad's curtains <laughs> <laughs> so it should be fine (laughs) and it's funny that because i mean that that can be a tool for good as well kate bush is a very poncing about on top of the pops in your mum and dad's curtains artist uh but she She, is great (laughs) she yeah i suppose she is but it's not i never find it pretentious i find it i mean it's almost again it's the lindsay kemp connection it's she's almost like bowie in the sense that it's like this other this other entity there's yeah. no there's no way to sort of compare her to it's just like an alien visitor really isn't it and to me one of i think i was talking to rob about this on maybe it was on directors uncut a bit back but for me like the yardstick for pretension is there in the word it's, is this a pretense yeah 
and it's like you can say many things about a teenager who knows who G.I. Gurdjieff is in the days before the internet helped you to just type the name into Google, but that's some level of knowledge, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that um, at least, <laughs> yeah, you've hit it there with the yardstick thing, of, is the pretense to this. A bunch of South London lads ponted about in the mum and dad's curtains. It's a pretense. Yeah. <laughs> so we can, yeah, it, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And also, I've got to say, Directors and Cut just still sounds like some sort of weird pornography of um, <laughs> yes. non circumcised to... filmmakers. I've, got to, I've really got to take this up with Rob one day. <laughs> We're back to Sebastian again, aren't we? Yeah, we are. <laughs> In fact, to Lindsay Kemp being spaffed all over, whilst um, Jordan with her uh, fantastic muff just sort of yes, <laughs> good Jordan listeners, not uh... no, not bad Jordan, good Jordan, yeah, good Jordan, good Jordan, who's inexplicably played by that whiny little woman from Game of Thrones <laughs> in uh, in Pistol. <laughs> I am still a bit of a Macy Williams defender, but I haven't plucked up the courage to watch Pistol yet. I feel like I probably will end up doing it, if only because I've made this fucking podcast and it's a rod for my back now. Anything with a music connection, I just watch and think, shit, there's an episode on that coming out. Madonna's directing a film about Madonna. Oh, fucking hell, I'm going to have to do it one day, aren't I? (laughs) Just count yourself lucky that Black Lace aren't going to do a film. <laughs> so far as we so know. Far, the the Black Lace story. One New on stranger things appearance <laughs> away from having a major revival. <laughs> New on Disney Plus, the Black <laughs> Lace story. <laughs> Directed oh. by Nick Love or something like that. <laughs> I think you found the perfect parallel to Pistol there, haven't you? Like the, the most down market band with the most down market version of Danny Boyle. <laughs> Although Ken Loach's Black Lace story, I would definitely watch. Oh, that could be interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Danny Boyle always said there's a Ken Loach version of Train Spotting to be made, isn't there? So it's yeah. like kind of a Ken Loach version of, uh, of Pistol or of the Black Lace biopic that we're now mooting. <laughs> I wonder if every one of Danny Boyle's films has a like parallel universe Ken Loach version of it. I'd love to see a live lesson. Yeah, that would be <laughs> interesting. That. That'd be an interesting one, definitely. <laughs> Ken Loach's Olympic opening ceremony (laughs) in which James Bond assassinates the Queen (laughs) now that I would be down for (laughs) I can see I'm not a Ken Loach fan but you couldn't possibly make a worse Steve Jobs biopic than Danny Boyle did (laughs) Steve Jobs, we want jobs yes, that's it a proper anti-capitalist version of the Apple story (laughs) as opposed to one that just radicalises you into an ardent Maoist by how bad it is (laughs) 
But yeah, Miranda Richardson's good. Miranda Richardson's good. <laughs> She's good, isn't she? Yeah, I like her. Um, <laughs> a couple of more connections uh, before we move on to the second half of this double bill. But uh, we've talked about Lindsay Kemp. In between the beliefs of the dreaming and hounds of love, Bush sang backing vocals on Flowers by Zane Griff, which is a, a tribute to Lindsay Kemp. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Oh, that's um, something I have to check out then. The other thing is the mysterious Lily. Yeah, this kind of little old dear who mm. could... I know when we talk on here, we always end up turning it back to Doctor Who, but I could definitely see her in a seventh Doctor and a story. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Quite easily, yeah. I mean, they sort of having to go to her in the same way that Kate Bush goes to Lily in this. Kate Bush would have had the contact to that because she did, of course, write the two Mara stories. Yes. <laughs> Shall we? I feel like listeners won't understand that until, no. unless we vent. One but of the I most... love the fact that, that it won't. So can you imagine if you've literally just, I mean, it's never going to happen, is it? We don't have the pull, unfortunately. But can you imagine if people have just come to this from Stranger Things and now they're being inundated with like Lindsay Kemp being spaffed on, a Ken Loach version of something popular, <laughs> and, and now the Mara? <laughs> Listen, as every fact on this podcast is true. <laughs> and David Bowie did, inv- did indeed invent Connect Four. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, but one of the most hilariously embarrassing uh, corners of Doctor Who fandom, wasn't it? Was there were yeah, two yeah. very enigmatic, mystical Doctor Who stories written about a monster called the Mara in Peter Davison's run. And the writer for them, Christopher Bailey, was so reclusive and so hard to find information on that a group of fans looked at Kate Bush's then previous album the dreaming and said it was full of clues that she was the real author of the mara stories i'd love it i'd love that to be true i'd absolutely love that to be true (laughs) doctor who magazine managed to track down christopher bailey about 20 years ago which i still think is probably his most recent interview and they actually mentioned that to him and he just howled. He thought it was incredible that there was Brilliant. a whole group of people who thought he was Kate Bush. Fantastic. Yeah, I just have, I seem to recall, I, I haven't read that into a long time since I bought Doctor Who magazine, but I seem to recall, like, from tidbits and anecdotes about him, he was some sort of Buddhist who wore um, yellow socks and meditated yeah. an awful lot. So, I mean, that's yeah. basically it. Yeah, he was a genius, but he, like a lot of geniuses, he was not cut out for the sort of pacey, collaborative, bottom line focused world of television writing. No, I guess not. But fanta- two, two fantastic stories, nonetheless. Yeah, love them. Yeah. There is another Kate Bush Doctor Who connection that I only oh, found out about while researching this. And this is very convoluted. Uh, but. You remember the video to Babushka, don't you? Oh, yes. Everyone remembers the video to Babushka. Her costume minute was inspired by a book she found with the extraordinary title of Raven Sword Mistress of Chaos. I bet that was good. Um, 
that cut. See, they're on John Peel's festive fifty, aren't they? Add <laughs> <laughs> on at the wrong speed there. <laughs> um, Coming up tonight, it's a special session with Raven Mr. Chaos. <laughs> no Havels Wilson sat in on Radio <laughs> One. Come and have a look at this, Mary. <laughs> Coming at you with all the topical references here. Oh, Maybe Havel yes. Wilson will have a comeback after Stranger Things reference. I think that'd be good. I like it. I think that would be good. Yeah. <laughs> I hope they do come back. Yeah. I think that would be good. <laughs> Raven, Sword Mistress of Chaos, though. The cover which Kate Bush uh, took as inspiration for that costume was illustrated by Chris Achilleos. Oh, right. Okay. He oh, did fantastic. so many of the early Doctor Who novel covers. Yeah. Was he the guy who um, punched David Bowie as well at art school? And that is why he's got, why Bowie had a different coloured eye. I did, uh, I never heard that. I assume if that's true, I would have heard that before. I heard it was someone actually at uh, his his school, like, you know, that George Underwood was oh, the right. guy you hit boy in the eye. Is that another fan myth, do you think? Might be then, yeah. I seem to recall hearing a Doctor Who artist. Right. So, yeah, that could be another one that we've unearthed there. Oh, well, hang on. I'm, I've searched for George Underwood, um, and he is listed as an artist. Doesn't mention any Doctor Who stuff on his Wikipedia page. He did an the... awful lot of album covers. The name's not jumping out at me as, as something that I've recalled reading on the back of a Target book or anything like that. No. But uh, you never know. You never um, know. Yeah. And then the, there's another slightly weird one in um, Cloud Busting, uh, Donald Sutherland. From the basis of that video, everybody was saying in the 80s when uh, there was talk of uh, a Doctor Who movie finally ah, being made that yes. he would be perfect to play the Doctor based off that video. Which is wild, isn't it? Because you think he's playing Wilhelm Reich. I mean, Wilhelm <laughs> Reich did have a magic box, but it was not a TARDIS. No. <laughs> definitely was not a TARDIS. It really wasn't, no, no. But it's just that general sort of avuncular, paternal, uh, professorial yeah. type. Yeah. Even though most of it was just him doing yes. that, an awful lot in that video, wasn't it? <laughs> pointing a lot I can see it now you mentioned that it's funny yeah I, I came to that room quite late and obviously Donald Sutherland's great you know I have nothing against Donald Sutherland but I always wondered how he got in the conversation and yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah it's that it's certainly better than some of the alternatives at the time such as um, John Cleese and Dudley Moore which uh, yeah they basically just go for any famous english person i think at that point weren't they i think it was yeah tim curry was a good shout as well for that obvious reasons been good. Yeah. yeah yeah but we were talking about lily and i sort of sidetracked everything with mentioning oh, doctor who yeah yes lily um i looked up lily because lily is just credited as lily and i thought oh, that was very mysterious especially since it stands out because basically everyone else in this is famous right yeah yeah. yeah, everyone else is from, like, a British comedy show of the time or is a dance legend like Lindsay Kemp or something like that. Or is, you know, is someone you'll know if you've seen yeah. Kate. Yeah, Miranda Richardson in a Frida Kahlo uh, eyebrows and a... Yes, oh, you're they a are. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, the appearance of Lily, who is just played by Lily, is quite odd. Uh, Lily, it turns out, is a spiritual healer from London who oh, the song brilliant. of that title was actually written for. Brilliant. That's very Kate Bush. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's mm. even more kind of, yeah, that's nice, that. I like that. I didn't know, I genuinely didn't know that. And I watched it again, as I say, and it come up and I'm looking at the cast list and it literally just goes, Lily, doesn't it? And you're like, yeah, yeah but who is Lily? But that's, yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic, that. But yeah, she'd have been great in a Doctor Who story. She would, if, yeah. If they'd have carried on into the 90s, yeah. which, um, it's, it's criminal that they never did, but um, the seventh and eighth should definitely have had a, an adventure with Lily. It's, it's one of those things, too, where the rest of the cast are so much of a certain scene that you find yourself kind of going through your head for, you know, was there anyone in Blackadder who looked like that? Was there anyone in uh, yeah. Filthy Rich and Catflap who had that yeah. look? Yeah, so I, yeah. Just the, the night before I watched this, I watched that Imagine episode about Miriam Margulies. Oh, I watched that the, the last week, yeah. yeah. Good, wasn't it? It was. It's great fun. Yeah. I think it's a shame they, they sort of literally robbed any reference to a politics out of it, though. That was the only downside <laughs> yes. for me. It's like, it clearly, it just shows you how fucking weak the BBC is now that they can't accept any criticism of uh, of current government or any any support for left-wing causes. Yeah, although, you know, while I think it was probably done out of cowardice, I do like the idea that we are trojan horsing this incredibly bolshy pro-palestinian woman yeah. into national treasure status yeah, yeah. it's um i although I, I, I national treasure is a term that i use a lot but I, it always leaves me a bit uneasy so i'm now i'm now going to call people nationalized treasures <laughs> which would be much better i think yes. <laughs> me margulies uh, maxine peak people like that they should definitely be nationalized treasures definitely <laughs> yes i, I think maybe margulies should be available for the public good when required yeah yeah yes. you want somebody to fart in a lift get miriam markley's <laughs> did she blame it on alan clark because if so we've we've solved that mystery <laughs> from the file podcast. From previous yeah from previous podcast yeah that's true <laughs> i'd love it if she blamed it alan yentop in that in that kitchen <laughs> <laughs> that's you there <laughs> should note that after a full BBC inquiry, Alan Yentop has been cleared from charges that he farted in a lift. <laughs> yeah, um, you mentioned quite rightly that it is strange that there isn't more Kate Bush-related cinema out there, and there had been a few near misses. Yeah, um, the one that hits straight away is um, Castaway, isn't it, right? Castaway, yes. She was going to have um, the Amanda Donahoe role in yeah, that. Yeah, but she sort of passed on the idea because it was literally just going to be in close proximity to Oliver Reed for a long period of time <laughs> and being virtually naked throughout the whole film. Yeah, I think it's it's not altogether a surprise is it yeah you would pass on that i think but she did give um the soundtrack the the theme did she the the, mm. uh, the main theme which was uh, a very good song be kind to my mistakes which i've always been really keen on that song 
lovely title too. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I quite like that film, actually, um, Castaway. It's not Rogue's best, and it is sort of suffering from that kind of 80s canon film-funded uh, sort of down-market autism. Yeah. Um, but I do quite like it, yeah. I remember reading the book. It's by Lucy Irvin, isn't it, the book? And oh, I then, don't know. I didn't know about yeah, that. Yeah, Lucy Irvin was the... This is a true story. Lucy Irvin was the woman who... Um, literally answered an ad for um, Girl Friday, Man Seeks Girl Friday. And uh, she'd, she'd, uh, there's a few books that Lucy Irvin wrote called like Runaway uh, was one of her early ones. She sort of literally ran, ran away from home. So she's always had that kind of nomadic, okay. free-spirited impulse. Um, so she then she answered the Girl Friday post and became castaway. And then Gerald Kingsland, who is the Oliver Reed um, character mm. he then wrote his version as well which um wasn't didn't grab the popular consensus as much as this year no no it doesn't seem to i am a i am a big fan of that kind of that part of auto fiction where you think yeah you could just get this out in a really long twitter argument like when carl Ove now scarves first wife wrote an auto fiction about having an ex-husband who writes books about how crap you were <laughs> and you think just just go to a therapist please so nowadays it's a few tweets and then a block isn't it yeah That's yeah <laughs> let the rest of the world sort of uh debate it for <laughs> you after that <laughs> yeah but the only real sort of film acting appeal she'd made prior to the line the cross and the curve was in lay dogs yeah, is it Les Dogs or is it Lay Dogs? Well, my French was frequently acclaimed by my teacher as almost supernaturally bad. Uh, so I'm not <laughs> going to say. I think my school report one year said great progress could be made if he would learn to pronounce most pronouns. That would that would be helpful, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be helpful. <laughs> Although that you know, I, I packed in French. You know, we had to do your choices, so you do like yeah. three years. I packed in French uh, after the third year. So all I remember now is Oué uh, Lagar, which apparently is where is the train station. Um, Defonce de Fume, no smoking, and Defonce de Crache, no spitting. So, oh. <laughs> so they're the only French that I uh, that I have, unfortunately. An English <laughs> but... teacher of mine had the worst experience trying to bluff French when he was uh, in bio, and you know when you're in bio, you want to see. Um, local donut shop i think it is yeah no. absolutely yeah, yeah yeah no there's one reason why a teacher goes with a class to buyer and he was looking for that and he wanted to ask a policeman but he's an english teacher it's not his job to know french so he thought okay well buyer you don't need to translate um where is is Uwe and tapestry it's probably just Tape or something like that. <laughs> so he went up to a police and said, It will tape by a. And the policeman just looked at him and tried to stifle laughter and then walked off. Uh, he asked one of the actual French teachers later on where he'd gone wrong. And she told him that whereas Uwe is correct and Bayer is correct, 
the nearest English equivalent to tapet is probably knob jockey. <laughs> Where is the knob jockey of tapet fire? That'd be brilliant. <laughs> Again, almost certainly of all Lindsay Kemp played for Derek Jarman. The Dom Jockey of Fire, yeah. That's a Peter Greenaway <laughs> film, that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that is good. That is so good. <laughs> Lay dogs, though. <laughs> yeah, but I did, my, my question still stands. I'm not sure whether it's supposed to be clumsy French, like, or whether it is, I don't know, or whether it is supposed to be proper French, I'm not sure. Having a sort of frangly name feels like a very wedding band thing to do, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And the whole um, the whole film um, is a riff on, or a, a very British uh, idea of absurd, surreal, black European comedy, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit sort of weekendy with Jean-Luc Godard. It's yeah. a bit Bunwellian, yeah. and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. I, perhaps we should we should explain to some listeners what the comic strip, the strand that this aired as as part of, actually was. Yeah, by all means. Yeah. It's um do you want me to try it or do you want to try it? <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I was trying to think of how I'd describe it really. And it, it's quite an odd thing. It was basically a series of one-off comic plays with a regular cast that would generally no i mean they they changed their own times didn't they there were a few of them that were feature length i think yeah yeah um supergrass yes yeah. uh but i think that was cinematic release wasn't it supergrass i think well it's very porous isn't it it seems yeah. to be like people talk about there being a crossover between film and TV now, but this is really a crossover between film and TV. And yeah, I mean, quite hard to tell which one is a film and which one isn't. Certainly, many of the original Channel Four ones were used as like support features on mm. various uh, cinema circuits in in the eighties. Definitely, I know Strike definitely was a, a support feature, um, but yeah, comic strip is a sort of term for a loose collective of alternative comedians that mm. um, came about in the late 70s. Uh, so you're looking at the cream of sort of British comic talent at that time, Alexi Sale, Rick Maylade Edmondson, French and Saunders, Peter Richardson, Nigel Planer, um, Keith Allen, uh, various people like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Robbie Coltrane, of course, before he yeah, was yeah. serious actor, yeah. Robbie Coltrane uh, was in yeah. an awful lot of them. Yeah. The, at this point, I think this is 1990, isn't it? So I think yeah. it had just moved to that. Might This might be the first series they did for the BBC. Yes, um, I know. Because originally it was Channel 4, wasn't it? It did say BBC in the end. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was looking this up because I, I've seen a fair few comic strip presents, but I've never, like, studied them in the the depth to which i think they deserve and yeah this was part of series five which as you say was bbc it divides up very oddly in that it has basically a first half of the season which is like topical parody particularly in 
that form that they inaugurated with strike where you play out some parochial kind of British government story as though it's a Hollywood blockbuster. Um, it's it's my favourite really from that season is GLC, isn't it? That's, GLC, uh, the carnage continues with a theme song by... Kate Bush. Kate Bush, yes. Ken, who is the funkin' sex machine? Ken. <laughs> 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 Which... Um, yeah, not many people are going to sing that about Ken Livingston now, unfortunately. But uh, probably yeah, I, not. No. I still stand by it. I still stand by it. <laughs> it was. I remember you mentioned Ken back when Kate Bush made a, a sort of comment about Theresa May that a lot of people interpreted as her being pro-conservative, and yeah, yeah. Uh, she she later said that that was misinterpreted. But uh, as you said, you cannot sing Ken. And be a Tory. It's yeah, not it's, possible. It's just impossible. It's just impossible. But Ken's a brilliant um uh, GLC, sorry, is a brilliant well, Ken's a brilliant song. I do love yeah. that song actually. But um because again, it's no with that song, there's no sense of a musician just running something off as a joke. Mm, there's yeah. some real drive, commitment, and power behind that song, as well as its tongue being firmly in cheek. <laughs> and I think also, you know, we are going back to the thing about Kate Bush always being an essentially cinematic musician, that all of the soundtrack work, you know, is, is something that she puts serious passion behind. She doesn't yeah. just do it to cash in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a song. It's not like, 30 seconds of a song that is just played on a loop, which it could have easily been because, you know, yeah. it just fits the, the half hour film. You know, you could just do something for 30 seconds, run it off and just put it on a loop throughout the background. Yeah. But it's but, a proper commitment. But GLC and parts one and two of South Atlantic Raiders, which is a yeah, Falklands. The spoof, Falklands one, yeah, yeah. That's the first half of the series. And then the, the rest of it goes into a sort of odd, like, spoofs of art house cinema which nowadays yeah. seems extremely satiric because most television doesn't trust you to have seen anything other than other television shows this is it yeah it's much more of a it it, it knows its audience yeah it knows its audience are probably um you know, they're familiar with Time Out or something like that, you know. So it knows its audience are going to, be, are going to know some of the uh, illusions it's riffing on. And if they don't, then just stay for the jokes. Yeah, yeah I don't think it's really dependent on that in a way that maybe like Spaghetti Hoops, which is a parody of Italian neorealist <gasps> films. Yeah, and that's the, in that series. It was the, uh, it's a true story though, isn't it? It's, um, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's based on the book, um, I think it's called God's Banker, about, I think his name was Calvi. Oh, Roberto Calvi, right. Yeah, right. so Nigel Plain is playing Roberto Calvi in that, yeah. Ah. Which is uh, quite a fascinating little, um, and really, playing it really well for what is essentially, as you say, like half-hour spoof or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. gives great commitment to it. But Lay Dogs, I don't think quite, sort of it's it's a very loose spoof like i say it reminded me a lot of weekend but i don't think mm. you have to have watched weekend in order to get it and i don't even think there are direct references to weekend if anything no it's just it shares the same kind of humor i think yeah it's a general sense of um of atmosphere or mm. genre if you want if you want to try and say that that sort of 
Goddard type thing. I mean, I've not seen Weekend, but I can pick up the fact that this is clearly some sort of yeah. uh, riff on uh, on French surrealism. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a wonderful little film, really. <laughs> I was really charmed by it. Yeah, I'd never seen this one before we did this, um, and I do think there is real ambition and scale in it and you know nowadays when people talk about television being cinematic what they mean is that they've spent a lot on the camera uh, yeah. this is a, a film where they seem to spend quite a lot on what's in front of the camera which is yeah. novel but i think it could catch on <laughs> it's true the, 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 the great thing about uh, peter richardson i think i do think he's one of our most unsung uh, directing talents really because mm. he is an auteur in in a very traditional sense but yeah. the the sad thing about him is that uh his best work is cinematic but it's cinematic on television as opposed yeah. to on cinema when he's tried to to make the break to cinema he's always failed um it's like he did the Stella Street movie after a, a good what three series of Stella Street on BBC Two. He then did a movie of it, yeah, and it was crap. And then you've got Churchill: The Hollywood Years, which is a kind of comic strip film in all but name, mm. which again riffs on that idea, as you say, of a, a sort of parochial moment in in British history that has become uh, bastardized by a Hollywood blockbuster interpretation. Yeah. Um, so obviously it's like, let's tell the story of Winston Churchill, but if Winston Churchill was a, a young, attractive American played by Christian Slater. Yes. <laughs> but again, funny ideas, but terrible execution. It just didn't really do well as a as a cinematic film whereas i think there's some funny things in churchill hollywood years but it's strange that it feels far more like a television movie than a lot of the actual television episodes that, of comics. that's exactly it the, the 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 vision and the scope and the dynamism that he he puts in on the small screen just seems to just disappear once he gets to the big screen. The nearest success, I mean, it's a long time since The Pope Must Die with Robbie Coltrane, so I can't comment on that one, but the nearest success was probably Supergrass. But as I say, I don't know if that was originally made for TV and it somehow became a film or right. he always had the idea to do it as a film, but it's got one of, I think Lenny Henry calls it one of the most um defining moments of 80s British uh, cinema, which is Robbie Coltrane walking along the... Um, oh, yes. The, the, it's like a... The a break. A, yeah, yeah, the break um, water. The, yeah, the yeah. Beach. Yeah. With... Um, Frankie goes to Hollywood. A violin tribes. case with, with a like, gun in it. Or a, yeah. Well, we think it's a gun. We're not sure. It turns out it's a, it's a chainsaw, isn't it? Um, or a suitcase with that in. Uh, and two tries by Frankie goes to Hollywood. It's a fantastic piece of cinema it's just yeah. so i mean it's not often i agree with lenny Henry on most things but i mean that is something that i, I, I would tip my heart to say you know fair play to lenny Henry, you can see that you know yeah and um the other film uh was eat the rich which came i think a couple of years after uh supergrass which right. is a comic strip film released for cinema but comic strip in all but name in that he does he does that thing where he decides to, uh, and I don't, again, it's a strange choice. He, he He's created an ensemble of comic talent mm. that you would expect to see in all these things. Uh, and then when he got the chance to do a big movie, he 
doesn't feature them in any significant roles. They're sort of like <laughs> background sort of supporting players. Uh, instead, I think the closest sort of regular was Robbie Coltrane. He has a yeah. major role. And the lead role is by um, Alan Pillay, who is a sort of uh, non-binary uh, cabaret performer, which um, I remember at the time he was... He's an acquired taste, let's say. He's a, he's a bit of a Marmite person mm. um, and not, not a very good actor. So to try and put an entire film around... I'm saying, sorry, I, I'm saying he. It's not he, ah. obviously, is it? Yeah. Well, he would have identified <laughs> as he at the time, I guess. Yeah, but now yeah. I suppose, uh, I suppose that they identify as they. So he's... Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I've been spending quite a lot of time talking about Sophie Hagen recently, who I've become a real fan of, and I'm very oh, confident okay. one day my my fandom will extend to correctly gendering them without having to think about it. It'll happen. Yeah, I hope so too. It's 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 a struggle, and I, yeah. I know I, I as soon as I said I think it's shit. No, but yeah, <laughs> they were an acquired taste back then, and it's weird that they were given the opportunity to essentially front a film. I'm sure Paul McCartney has a cameo in that film as well. Oh, which, right. Again, it's just weird. Yeah. There's a lot of um, weird famous faces in the background. Yeah. Well, something which he certainly stuck to with Lay Dogs, which has all of the regular comic strip presents characters in Sale, Richardson, McKinney, all of them. Uh, and also, of course, Kate Bush as the bride. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, um, I, I did, I, I, I tried to, I, I actually looked today to try and find, um, source for this but i'm sure i couldn't find it but i'm sure i've heard it somewhere and it might have been dawn french that said it that he only, richardson only cast kate bush in the role because he wanted to kiss her <laughs> <laughs> and i'm sure it's a teasing little comment because i don't actually think he does get to kiss her in the whole film no i think every time happen. he goes in for a kiss yeah sort of snap back to reality isn't it it's quite weird because it has this element in it very prominently of a sort of comedy of sexual frustration of someone who yeah. falls in love with a woman who's involved with someone else and constantly gets thwarted as he tries to get to know her. But the world surrounding it is so bizarre that it completely defamiliarizes that very familiar concept. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an intentionally surreal film. Mm. Um I love that bit at the the beginning where, well, not the beginning, but it's, it's just after the credits where we were introduced to Richardson's character, Victor, who's some kind of um, urbane businessman, isn't he? A very languid, lounge licity type businessman. Yeah. Um, and they've crashed into uh, Ledog's... Uh, tour van. Tour van, yeah. Yeah. And his chauffeur's dead in the front seat and he's on the mobile phone at the back, isn't he? Proper old 80s yes. brick mobile phone. Trying to flesh out some deal. Then he eventually sort of goes, uh, I've got to hang up now. Um, my car's just crashed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's yes. the first indication you get that he's actually noticed this. Some kind of uh, motorway pileup. <laughs> <laughs> Before that, you've had that bizarre opening thing with some kind of um, 
like vaguely Central American kind of despot in full military uniform talking in English accent about how he's going to ban cars and... uh, He's supposed to be the leader of the Green Party, isn't he? So in this... I did not pick up on that at all. It was just completely abstract They they keep screaming at it. I mean, there's there's, uh, Pete Richards who co-wrote it screams, no, you green bastard, no. Ah. Something like that. And then later on, I think Stephen O'Donnell says um, when they run out to get the cars because he's just banned the motor car. And he's like, Listen, there's 140 in this. T- you can go 140. I've got a full tank here. I'm not going to pay attention for that. It's a horrible phrase, but it's I'm quoting it. Well, that green faggot tells me, you know, something yes, like that. Yeah. So he's supposed to be the Green Party leader and somehow they come <laughs> to power. It's a, it's a great little performance from Keith Allen doing his sort of whispering Richard Burton type. Uh, yeah, he's surprisingly subtle in this, isn't he? Yeah, it's, it's really not a register he goes back to very often. No, that's true. Career. That's true. He's just sort of like swiveling about in a chair, isn't he, and speaking in a very very uh, peaceful yeah. but eerily sinister kind of voice while he's sort of pulling on his uh, swagger stick, isn't he? <laughs> and it ends with that fantastic punchline after, is, is it television that he bans next um, or something like that? He says, you'll have to go back to having conversations with each other in a yes. room, which brings me to telephones. Telephone and the racing pigeon. <laughs> 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 yeah, but there's an interesting um, it's an interesting sort of slip in that. I think it's slip, either that or they just decided to put him there anyway. But it's the opening scene, and Peter Richardson stood there with them as part of the wedding party. Oh, right, yeah. So either that yeah. should never have been the opening scene, and it was supposed to occur later on in the film, but somewhere along the line they went, oh, we'll put it at the front of the film. Or they just decided they needed a few more bodies in that room and it didn't really matter that Peter Richardson is clearly playing the character who's only in- introduced into the film after the credits. So it's an odd one, that. Yeah, I don't know. It's the sort of film which is so dreamlike that you can just about get away you could, with Yeah, that. you could just about... Yeah, you could just about say, well, yeah, we, we expect that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that he, he cast Kate Bush as the bride, bearing in mind... Um, I just think of the wedding list. <sighs> Even though the violence is being done all around her. Yeah. You know, but it just carks back to the wedding list for me. It's yeah, it, it's one of those performances that I think is is very, you know, I think it's a good performance on her part, but it also takes into account the whole idea of casting a pop star is that some people might not be able to suspend disbelief. And this uses it, like a lot of Bowie's performances do, but this uses that to its advantage. If you think of Kate Bush as this very ethereal presence who has no business being in a film with a load of grubby English comedians, uh, you're in luck, because that's basically who she is here. Basically what they're asking for us to to convey, aren't they? And they do yeah. it by the idea of um, a, it's a, a traditional... Um, English preoccupation. It's a, it's it's a class war, isn't it? Yes. So uh Kate's um the daughter of Alexi Sales. <laughs> the daughter of Alexi Sales and Miranda daughter of Alexi Sale and Amanda, Miranda Richardson, yeah. What genetics? Yeah. <laughs> Alexi Sale is clearly some kind of um 
black watch officer, would we say? Because he's wearing a kilt and a, oh, of it's a very yeah. ceremonial. And Christopher Malcolm's his brother-in-law and he's in the same uh, mm. get-up. So it's an old sort of landed gentry, military type of uh, establishment family. Yeah. And then Daniel Peacock as the groom. Um, his family are, you know, for want of a better word, uh white trash really yeah yeah at a push you would say they were nouveau riche wouldn't you yeah um but yeah they look like um <laughs> they look like they have not only stolen the family silver they're in the process of trying to sell it back to you at a knockdown yes. price <laughs> and it's slightly hard to read isn't it because it's like that there's never a point in the film where anyone says oh god i wish you weren't marrying that commoner or something like that it's all based on these social cues some of which have lasted yeah. some of which are a bit inscrutable yeah, room. I mean, you, you buy into, I mean, it, it, and it's very, again, it's 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 the mark of um, Richardson as a director that he does those clear divided lines. So you've mm. got all of the bride's family sat on one side of the room and all of the groom's family sat on the other side of the room. There's wonderful sort of like panning shots. So you can you just see with the, the look on the faces and the way that they're dressed, that they are two polar opposites of, of class. But it's not, because it's sort of inspired by uh, French surrealism, um, that you could play it without sound, you know. Yeah. And, you know, for another country would still get those, I think they would still understand what's being said there, even though class warfare is a is a, a perennial sort of English uh, um, preoccupation. Mm. It translates to other countries. I'm certain, you know, the French could easily... Have done have done that, yeah. With the yeah. same sort of uh, the same sort of um, success rate. Yeah, I think so. I think sometimes when I watch comic strip present stuff, I, I do think uh, this is maybe sailing a bit over my head because I'm a bit like, although I have learned about some of the events they're describing retrospectively, I was not immersed in them at the time because yeah. I was a baby for some of it. But <laughs> it's like, um, but sometimes I feel like things flying over my head. And in this one, I did a bit, but it, it really, it doesn't hurt the kind of odd ambience of the film. Which no, I think, I think it's really I'm sure, ambitious. I'm sure that, I'm sure that Richens, uh, Pete Richens, Peter Richens' writing partner, I'm sure he's actually on record as saying it was a deliberately surreal film. Mm. And also on record as saying that they had no way to end it, so they just cut to Christmas. Yeah. So I just thought, well, yeah, it's surreal, isn't it? We'll just go with that, you know. So it it is supposed to go over your head a little bit, I think. I don't, I don't think it's any harm done by the idea no. that it's not fully registering or you're not fully following it. Yeah, I also think the the ending is odd because it's one of the few things in it that I thought was a bit more clear in that you have that final image, which is very memeable, isn't it? It's a meme before its time of Kate Bush the with eyes. The kind of glowing yeah. eyes. Yeah. And there's yeah. a sort of a, a car crash sound effect and it leads towards an interpretation that all this weirdness has just been some kind of Carnival of Souls style death dream. Do you know what's just come to me then? I said at the very beginning, Pete Richardson's in the uh, in the the throng around the TV set. Yeah, of course he fucking is. They're all going to that wedding, aren't they? 
Oh, of course, yes. And then there's the car crash. He's already dead, isn't he? Yeah, so yeah. So he was part of that wedding party after all. Yeah. I think we've just solved this, haven't we? We've just <laughs> solved those dogs. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I suppose that must be it. Because be it. it's the lights, which, of course, are the headlights. Mm. It's the sound of the crashing gears and the collision. And then you're, you're into the, to the, uh, the credits at the end. So everything else. Yeah, I suppose it makes sense now. Yeah. It is. I, I really enjoyed it, and I think anyone sort of coming to it now, while they will find some of the references a bit abstruse, will be fascinated by how singular it is. It is, and I try and stop myself saying this, but it is impossible to imagine this going on television now. It's so true. It's so true. Well, I can't even remember the last comic strip that was on television. I think it might it have been Red, Red Top, Top, I think. Yeah. And that was for gold or something like that. So, I mean, it's how the mighty have fallen, is it? You've gone from Channel 4 to the BBC to gold yeah. um, with a couple of misfiring cinematic releases along the way. It's um, it's a shame, really, because, you know, I had the privilege of, uh, I've mentioned before on this podcast, having a a very enlightened father who would literally just say, well, there's, there's no, I didn't have a bedtime, you know? So it's just like, yeah. you go to bed when, when everybody else goes to bed. And my dad would watch uh, the young ones, filthy rich and cat flap and comic strip presents. So I was, I, I, I got to sit at his knee and watch all of those things. And it sort of shaped me uh, who I am really. One of my, um, fondest memories is watching bottom in the nineties with him and just the pair of us pissing ourselves laughing while my mum just wonders what the hell we're, we're giggling <laughs> at really. <laughs> but yeah, and it's, and that, that goes back to it as well. It's a, it's a very funny film. Mm. It's a really funny film. It's it um, feel like it's pressing for laughs, doesn't it? It doesn't no, feel like it's, just, it's really going all out for them. Yeah. It's, it's it's almost like it's so subtly done mm. that it's almost like the laughs could pass you by if you're not careful. But some yeah. of the lines are brilliant, like Miranda Richardson trying to convince Kevin Allen's uh, lead dogs band leader to play. You know, it's like they're not shooting at you; they're shooting across from you, <laughs> and we have paid you. So <laughs> I think the biggest laugh I got out of it, and the one that is maybe most representative of its style, is when I think it's Peter O'Donnell is uh, at the wedding party and Stephen O'Donnell. Stephen O'Donnell. Spud gun. Yeah. Yeah, spud yeah. gun, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are you call Spud Gun? Give me a spud and I'll show you. <laughs> 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 but he said he's like in the middle of this shootout at the wedding party, reloading this assault rifle and just casually going, yeah, they said it was going to rain, but it's actually turned out pretty nice weather all around, hasn't it? <laughs> it's just I love it. But now English some... conversation playing out in the middle of a descent into civil war. Yeah, he gets really good lines in that Stephen O'Donnell. Like, like I've, I've mangled it up before, but the opening line about you know let's get in the cars and just drive and let let's finally hit 140 mile an hour or whatever it was. The way he says <laughs> it, it's like it's almost like a cliche of those. I've got a full tank in this baby, you know that you'd hear in like American cinema yes. or something like that. But hearing it in a very obvious English accent is just really hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean. 
I think it's a better performance of Kate Bush. Yeah. Than uh, I mean, she only gets one scene of dialogue, really, doesn't she? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's more convincing than the dialogue she's given in the line of the cross and the curve, perhaps because it's more, even though it's a very surreal abstract film, that exchange is grounded in reality. It sounds yeah. like it's a woman who has prearranged to run away with Peter Richardson's character. So it's, it's a kind of dialogue that you'd expect in an episode of EastEnders, really. There's a, there's a reality yes. to it that um, is not in the rest of the film. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think even some of the non dialogue pieces are sort of subtly played like there's that bizarre where the the groom is licking her face and she just has this really sweet expression like this is the day she dreamed of since she I'd was love a to, girl <laughs> and then you wonder why alexi sales fuming on the opposite side of the room <laughs> <laughs> but i'd love to know what danny peacock um thought about that day you know i, I got mm. to lick kate bush's face <laughs> for a considerable length of time <laughs> the only thing that again if we were to go from that idea of like this is not tolerated in with, with 2022 eyes it's the mm. whole subplot of um peter richardson then pretending to be a doctor once she's collapsed and sort of sweeping her up off her feet and taking her into a hotel room Whereupon we don't see anything happen, but he's obviously spending some significant time with her in this hotel room uh, while yeah. she's unconscious. A lot it's not going to fly now. The thing is so uncomfortable and so transgressive that it, it, it's, I suppose it, it feels less offensive to me because it's not asking for you to accept it. It's not asking no, yeah. you to, to and yeah, that way. because it's so abstract and so um, surreal. It is kind of, but there's a bit of you that does think, "Ooh, this wouldn't get past now." Yeah, <laughs> and and of course, Peter Richardson's character is introduced as a guy making a business deal on an enormous mobile phone, which yeah. is like he's a loose sleaze. Which, that's um, how you called someone as a villain in 1980s yeah. British cinema, particularly a, in a comic strip film. It's the kind of part Richardson would excel at time and time again, the yeah. loose sleaze. Um, <laughs> I mean, the I don't know if it's true or it's just perceived wisdom, but the general consensus was that he was always going to play Mike the Cool Person in The Young Ones, wasn't he? But um, oh, yeah. he fell out with um, the producer, Michael Jackson, and they got Chris Ryan in instead. But it is essentially, that was essentially his character, the sort of sleazy, cool guy. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. Well, I think that's brought us to the end of our study of the remarkably slim screen acting canon of Kate Bush. Which we've probably talked about longer than both of those films put together. We probably have, <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, we have, probably haven't mentioned it, but The uh, Line of the Cross and the Curve is about 44 minutes long, and Les Dogs is about, about 30 minutes hour, long. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. We've probably done more than that, <laughs> <laughs> as is our want. And, you know, you've got to really sort of explore the Blessed Kate, really, haven't you? So of course, yes. Got to give her due respect. There, there is plenty to dig into, even in these things, which for, for all their positive qualities, I think are like adjuncts to her career rather than any yeah. kind of major work, but are still full of fascinating stuff. 
yeah, we never get the sense that this is somebody, like we said previously about um, Bowie and Baal, I don't get the sense that this is somebody going, this could be an alternative career for me. I think it's just somebody who's just enjoying themselves. Yeah, yeah. You can't say further than that, really, can you? Well, I think for, for someone whose public image is so enigmatic and ethereal, Kate Bush does seem to really enjoy dicking around and doing really stupid shit quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. And she was friends with these people, wasn't she? I mean, yeah. like you say, Comet Relief and Amnesty International um, fundraisers. Yeah. So it was that cross-pollination. Uh, and she just respected and admired these people. So the opportunity was there and you yeah. take it, yeah, I guess, yeah. So if you enjoyed that, uh, we do a Patreon exclusive episode every month and we should have another one out uh, the day after this episode goes out. So on that Friday, we're doing an episode about Electroma, the Daft Punk movie you probably missed, uh, but which I nevertheless rather like. <laughs> um, so if, you, if you're interested in that or any of our other exclusives, uh, we are expanding the list of what we do on our Patreon at the moment. You can go to www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show. But for everything else, that's been your lot for another week of Pop Screen. I've been Graham. And I've been Mark. And we'll see you next week. 